everyone. Super great day last Sunday. We were excited to see so many people get baptized, and uh, we had a great, great time. Uh, God has just been blessing great. We're wrapping up the summer and going into fall, and uh, just to kind of give you an example, uh, people are, are back. Our attendances have been good. We had over 1,550 people here in Fremont, over 800 at our Tiffin campus, over 175 at our Northwood campus. That, that makes 2,500 uh, 2, people, more than that, in the seats, and then a few hundred people watching online, and God just continuing to bless. And, and that happens, really, because of all of you and being involved in grace, inviting friends, and we appreciate it. We're actually starting a new series today, and it's on the life of David. And, and I know a lot of us kind of think of David as a Sunday school character, but he was a, a man who lived in ancient history. Actually, archaeology has proven that over and over. And uh, as a man who lived, he's super significant when it comes to Scripture. Actually, he's... With the exception of Jesus, he's mentioned more in the Bible than any other person besides Jesus. It's really amazing. Over 60 chapters in the Old Testament talk about the life of David. And then he's mentioned over 50 times in the New Testament. For example, here's one of those mentions. Acts 13, 21. Talking about the history of Jerusalem. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. After he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, this is saying, he, God, said this of David, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. What? Do you ever get the impact of that? I mean, that's what I think of when I think of David, is God keeps saying, he's a man after my own heart. You know, wow, what does that mean? And we know some of that obedience is involved in that. We can tell that just by the verse that I just read. But, but what else is that? Well, that's what we're going to learn over the next several weeks. But in order to get there and to sort of launch us off, I'll just kind of lay the history. Most of you already know this. But this is, uh, if you'll remember back in Israel, there was uh, Abraham and his grandson Jacob, and Jacob had a family, and they ended up in, in Egypt, and then later his offspring, uh, his relatives, his descendants end up in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. God sends a deliverer, Moses. He delivers the people out of Egypt. They don't immediately obey, so they wander in the, in the wilderness for 40 years, and then they're right on the brink of going into the promised land, what we would call Israel today. And Moses dies. Joshua takes over. And he leads the people into the promised land. And they conquer the land, which scripture tells us, by the way, was a judgment on the Canaanites who lived there because of their evil practices where they were sacrificing their children and fire and doing all this stuff. They conquer them and they establish this nation. Once their leader, Joshua, dies, the people kind of go into this pattern of following God and then not following God, and following God and then adopting all the all this kind of the, the worldly pursuits of the cultures around them. And that keeps go, happening over and over. And what would happen is, as the people started taking on the culture 
of the countries around them and they would drift from God, they would reject God and then the nations around them would conquer them and through that they would start, the people would start suffering and then they would finally realize that they've left God, they would repent, they would cry out to God for deliverance and then God would raise up a leader who would deliver them and they called those leaders judges. They called those leaders judges, and that happened over and over again. Then that judge would die, and then the nation again would drift away from God, and then they would be conquered by somebody else, and then they would cry out to help, and God would raise up another leader, and that kept happening. And David's story kind of dovetails together with the very last prophet, I'm sorry, the very last judge and first prophet, which is Samuel. So Samuel He's a guy that was the last prophet he was leading. He's getting old. And the people highly respected Samuel. And they realized that he was aging and getting close to death. And he actually had some sons, but his sons didn't follow God. And the people were like, no way, they're going to take over. And so they come to Samuel before he dies. And they know he follows God. And they say, Samuel... We want you to give us a king. You're getting old. You're going to die. Real encouraging to Samuel, I'm sure. You're going to get old and die. And we, want, we know your sons can't lead us. They don't, follow, they don't follow God. We want a king like all the nations around us. Well, Samuel grieves at that. He's like, what are you talking about? God is our king. God's the only king we need. And then he's talking to God about that. And then God says, hey, go ahead. You can anoint someone king. And he instructs, it's, it's okay. He instructs Samuel to anoint a guy named Saul as king. And so that happens. And so we're going to pick up. So that's where we are in history. We're going to pick this up. And as we work through this, the first part of chapter 16 is where we're heading in 1 Samuel. But as we get there, I want us to see God seeks, God seeks, God looks at the heart, and God sets apart uh, when his spirit comes. So first, God seeks people with a heart to follow him. So after Samuel anoints Saul king, Samuel thinks, hey, my leadership job is over. And so he basically sort of retires but in his life, he's actually called back into service three more times, twice with Saul and once with David. But, uh, so we're going to talk about two of those. And so the first time Samuel's back to duty was to address the Philistine threat. Now remember, Israel is surrounded by enemies. And they have the Mediterranean Sea on their west coast. And that's where the Philistines are. And then on the other side of the Jordan, on their east side... They have the Anamites, which are even a, a greater sort of ancient enemy of Israel. But the first time Saul returns back to duty was to address a Philistine threat to the west in Gilgal. And what's happening is Saul is made the king. And actually Saul's made the king because of some stuff that has happened on the other side of the country. But, uh, and he was a deliverer. But now the Philistines have got their armies together and they're, they're ticked off and they're getting ready to invade and Israel's realizing they're in a tough spot. 
And Saul's behavior toward God was dismissive, even to the point of disobeying God's instructions to wait for Samuel, because Samuel's been called out of retirement, because he was supposed to make a sacrifice. But Samuel's running a little late, or later than Saul wants him to be there. And then Saul decides, King Saul, hey, I'll just make this sacrifice myself. I'll take care of it. So he, at a, he took matters into his own hands. He improperly makes the sacrifice to God rather than wait for Samuel. And then here's what happens when Samuel gets there. This is in 1 Samuel 13, 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord will appoint him as ruler over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So that happens. So Saul gets that message but sort of life goes on. And now there's a threat on the other side, on the eastern side of Israel. And that's the Amalekites. And so um, there's a dealing there. And the Amalekites were, again, probably even greater ancient enemies of Israel than the Philistines. And God finally decides to bring judgment upon the Amalekites. And he instructs King Saul to not only fight them, but to kill them to the last man and to kill all their animals and not to take any spoil. I mean, God's talking about, hey, God's bringing God's judgment like only God can do and saying, you're going to wipe these people out. But Saul didn't exactly do that. He did a lot of that, but he also did kind of what worldly kings of the nations around them did at that time. First of all, he spares the king of the Amalekites, a guy named Agag. And then also, they don't kill all the animals. They keep the best ones and they say, well, we're going to keep these and we'll sacrifice these to God. And so, again, Samuel kind of catches up with Saul in 1 Samuel 15, verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me, has not carried out my commands. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul. And it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. So Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Saul said, Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. But the rest... We've utterly destroyed. So Samuel confronts Saul's disobedience, but then Saul kind of defends himself and says, 
well, my army did this. They did it, you know, brought back the best. And by the way, they brought back the best just so we can make a sacrifice. Basically, here's what Samuel tells Saul. Number one, that God prefers obedience more than sacrifice. And this comes up more than once in scripture. God wants obedience more than sacrifice. Don't do wrong and sort of think it's okay because you make some sacrifice to God. God wants obedience first. Second, Samuel tells Saul again that because of his disobedience against God, God has torn away the kingdom from him and his family. So Saul's out and somebody else will be in. And then Saul, Samuel does something else. He says, oh, and by the way, you let King Agag live. What? Bring him out. And so they bring Agag out, Agag out. And Agag's feeling pretty good. The text tells us that he's coming out. He's in a pretty good mood. They'd spared his life. He didn't really care that his army's been wiped out. But the heat of battle's over. The tempers have sort of calmed down. Now people are thinking more rationally. And here's Samuel. He's not a warrior. This guy's some prophet guy of God. So Agog comes out to, to meet Samuel. Samuel grabs a sword and hacks him to pieces. Samuel's a pleasant guy. But so, the, you know, and then everybody's like, wow, you know, he obeys God. And so while, and here Samuel's grieving over the fact that God is now rejecting Saul as king because of Saul's failures and that God's going to seek another king. And so now we pick it up in 1 Samuel 16, and this is the chapter where we're introduced for the first time to David. Now the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'll send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, well, how can I go? When Saul hears of it, he'll kill me. Notice Samuel and Saul not getting along that well. Samuel's like, I go to do this. Saul hears about it. He's going to have me killed. And the Lord said, well, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, you shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. He already knows it's going to be one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel did what the Lord said. And again, Samuel's obedient. He does what God says. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. And the elders of the city came trembling to meet him, and said, do you come in peace? Okay, so here's the picture. Bethlehem is this little town. Nobody knows about it. We all recognize Bethlehem because of this, because that's where David is from, and then it was later prophesied that's where the Messiah would be born. But this is before all that. It's a little bitty town. It's four miles away from Jerusalem. That's where all the action is. And here, Samuel's coming, and Samuel was a little bit of a circuit-riding preacher. He would visit different places as a judge over Israel, so they kind of know who he is, and he, they hear he's coming. Well, then all of a sudden, the elders, when they hear that Samuel's coming, the elders of the city, they kind of get their committee together, and they go outside the city and greet him, and they see him, and they ask him, do you come in peace? 
Well, why, why would they ask that? The leaders of the city, do you come in peace? Because they just heard that he hacked Agag to pieces and they realized that Samuel is an instrument of God's divine judgment as well as blessing. So they're like, do you come in peace? And then Samuel answers them and basically says, well, yeah. You know, they're saying, are you bringing blessing or judgment? Verse five, and he said, in peace, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So big, big events happening here. At some point, Jesse learns that Samuel is going to anoint one of his sons as king. And so this is huge. I mean, they must have been stunned. I mean, they're from this little town. And here's Samuel, and he's well-known throughout the whole place next to Saul at this point. And he's coming, he says, hey, I'm going to anoint one of your sons as king. God's searching for a new king, and he's going to be, for Jesse's perspective, one of my kids. But then we're reminded God looks at the heart. He's searching for someone with the heart of God to follow him. But God's constantly looking and judging the heart. So Jesse has his seven sons appear before Samuel. I mean, it's huge. Just as a huge event. Biggest thing that's ever happened in Bethlehem. Biggest thing at that point. Biggest thing that's ever happened in Jesse's family. It's huge. And so they start with the oldest brother. Chapter 16, verse 6. And when they entered, they're coming in one at a time, into Samuel's presence, he looked at Eliab. The Samuel looks at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. I mean, this is it. He's saying, oh, wow, this is the guy. He's a lock. I mean, Samuel had anointed King Saul, and if you'll remember that story, Saul was head and shoulders taller than anybody around him. And so he was an impressive-looking guy, Samuel anoints him as king under God's instructions. He's a good-looking guy. Now Samuel's there with Jesse's sons, and here comes the oldest sons, Eliab. And man, when he comes, wow. Samuel's like, this is the guy. It's a lock. He's tall. He's kingly-looking. This is a guy who looks like he can lead. Verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For God looks at the outward, I'm sorry, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. You see, this is our problem too, by the way. Our problem is that we look at the external. And the same thing's happening there. It continues in verse eight. Then Jesse called Abinadab, his next oldest son, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Thus, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. You see, God's looking for something different. 
And we need to pause right here and realize, hey, this is an issue for our entire culture and you and me. You see, our culture trains us to look at the external, especially through media. To me, this is worse than it's ever been because of media, because we're always seeing images, and it's all the external. You, we don't know anything about these actors. It's all, we're just seeing the external, the external, the external. You know, it's, it's pornography. You know, it trains people to judge people by outward appearances, not character, not their heart, just the external. And so even though we know and we've been raised and our culture will give lip service to that we should judge by the inside, we normally don't do that. We see the appearance, the position, the wealth, the connection more than the character, which is always harder to see. And so it continues in verse 11, and Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, Jesse answers, he says, well, there remains yet the youngest, and behold, he's tending sheep. And it's interesting, this word here, youngest, because literally that's smallest. It can also be derogatory, like, well, there remains kind of the runt of the family. Or it can also mean insignificant one. It can be derogatory. It seems like that's how it's, you know, basically Jesse's like, oh, oh yeah, okay, yeah, there's one more. Technically, he's my son. I treat him different than everybody else. And maybe Samuel's irritated here. You know, he's like, Jesse, you had one job. Bring your sons. And you got seven out of eight? I mean, come on. So God looks at the heart. So here comes David. He's, he's probably 50. We, we can tell his age because you have to be 20 to serve in the military and his older brothers are in the military, but he's not... You know, so we have him pegged at right about 14, 15 years old. And so they go get him. And, but the weird thing is you got to stop right there and say, how's David not invited to this? Even if Jesse doesn't think David's the one, this is the biggest thing that's ever happened to the family. This is a party. This is a significant event. And David doesn't even know about it. Hey, yeah, go, somebody run and get David. It's going to take a while because he's not nearby. And so they go get him. And so that's, that's what's happening here. And no, no one, before that, nobody thought about even asking David to come and watch all this. And there's speculation about that. A lot of scholars believe that David wasn't a full brother to the other seven brothers. And some, I'm saying, we don't know this for sure, some Jewish rabbinical thought is that David was an illegitimate son of Jesse, that he, he wasn't married to his mother. And, and there's some evidence to that, not only how he's treated here, but if you'll remember Psalm 51, one of David's greatest prayers after Bathsheba, if you'll remember verse five, he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. You know, a lot of times we just take that, yeah, we, he starts off, a sinner, you know, we, we all have this sin nature. But this could be, no, he's saying, no, literally, when my mother conceived me, she was committing sin. And so that's why they believe that. And whatever the reason, we don't know exactly why, what's going on here, why David's treated differently. But the point is this, that we know for sure. God uses the one 
overlooked by people is the one overlooked by people is noticed by God. And so it continues in verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, we'll send and bring him for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in. Now, and then here's the description of David. Now he was ruddy. You know, every, everybody read that, you know, and you wonder, ruddy, you know, why are we talking ruddy? He was ruddy, which, which the only other person described as ruddy is Esau when he was born, you know, and, and it means red, or it could be red-headed, but, you know, he's, he's red or, you know, sunburned. So he's ruddy with beautiful eyes. Kind of a weird thing to say, you know, beautiful eyes and, handsome, and a handsome appearance. You know, these are positive traits. It's kind of like, yeah, they're, but they're not kingly. They're not like impressive. It's like, yeah, he's a good looking kid. Yeah, he's a rosy cheeked, bright eyed kid. You know, it's kind of weird because I'm telling you as a guy and who, tell me guys who's with me. When you're like 15 years old, do you want, well, do you want to be seen pretty or tough, or the way it's supposed to be. You know what I mean. Who knows what's going on today? But you know, when you're 15, do you, do you want somebody to see you as pretty or as kind of tough and manly? You know, these are positive traits, but they're not kingly. And, and it's, when what makes this interesting is very few people in the Bible is their appearance described to us. And when their appearance is described to us, it's always because there's an integral part of the story. If you remember, Joseph was a good-looking guy. Well, why are we told that? Well, because his boss's wife wants to sleep with him, and then he won't, but he's accused of rape. So that's why we're told that. That makes sense. You know, that happens over and over. You know, Rachel's beautiful, but her older sister, not as beautiful. And so Jacob wants to marry Rachel, but Rachel's the younger daughter, and you know, all, and so their dad, Laban, you know, does the switch, and you know, then he, all that kind of happens. You know, later, one of David's sons, Absalom, is mentioned as, you know, he was a great looking guy, but that all led to his pride and, and a revolt. What I'm saying is, every time somebody's appearance is named, it's usually for a reason, and it seems like maybe what's happening in this text is they're saying, yeah, David's a good looking kid but not what anybody would expect in a king. And the Lord said, continuing in the text, the Lord said, arise and anoint him, for this is he. This is the guy. And so God sees beyond what we see. God uses people the world passes over. God uses even the most unlikely people for his purposes, people like you and me. Happens all the time. And David, he's anointed. And I got to tell you, some, some sitting here, you're like me. And you get to some point in your life and you're looking around and you're going, wow, God has blessed me more than I could have ever imagined. You know, I, I use this illustration with people a lot because I talk about this. Sometimes when I'm talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, you know, I'll just be like, you know, if, if God would have came to me when I was 20 and said, hey, what do you want in life? Not that God does this. I'm just saying, if he did, write out the check. What do you want in life? If I would have done that, it would not have been this good because I didn't know this good was possible. 
my family, my wife, my job, didn't know it was possible to be this I just wouldn't have thought that it could be this to write that down. And some of you are the same way. God has blessed and blessed and blessed. And God uses us in different ways to be part of what he's doing. Last week, I was kind of bragging on the Sunday, 18 people here in Fremont indicated that they were putting their faith in Christ. 18 people on Baptism Sunday indicated that. Now, here's why I'm mentioning this. Those 18, probably every single one of those people were invited to grace by one of you. And if you happen to be one that was part of the reason that they came to grace, then God has used you to change eternity, which is forever. You know, you, God has used you to do something that you can't do in heaven. Point people to Jesus and see them become followers. In heaven, everybody's already a follower. And so God uses us. God uses you. And, and sometimes God uses us, you know, where we can have a full-time job in ministry. You know, several of us here at Grace have this privilege. You know, where, where we can not only work and serve God somewhere else, but we get to work and serve God sort of at the same time and, and do church and all that stuff. And I know some of you are thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's fine for you preacher types, but that's not me. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, I know exactly how you feel. That's exactly what I thought. Or maybe you're already in school for something now. You already launched some other career. And you're, and you're thinking, because you do want to follow God, hey, I've got this career going, and I think I can honor God with this career. So, you know, ministry's out of the question. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. And God changed that. I'm just saying, we can follow God and serve him in any career. But sometimes you know, full-time ministry, we probably ought to think about that because if you're thinking, well, yeah, I'm just not wired up for that. Right. I agree. That's exactly how I felt. And so God changes that. You know, here, I have the privilege of leading grace. Every week I try to do that more effectively. But I'm just saying, if you knew me, in high school, and maybe, you know, maybe Tim and Ben, you know, maybe the same way, or Tim Weisert or Mike, you know, I don't know. You know, if you knew me in high school, no way. You just, what will Kevin end up doing? Not much and pretty insignificant. You know, right. And I was okay with that. I'm just saying. No one knows better than me. No one knows better than me than God can use anyone, anyone. And God can use you in full-time ministry or God can use you where you're working today. God can use anyone. So if, here's the thing. God looks at the heart. Wait, this is scary. I mean, God looks at the heart. What's he seeing in there? You know, what's our motivation why do we do things? Is it for us or is it for God? How are we living our life? What's our perspective? How do we see the world? Is it just through what we can get out of it or is it through what God is up to? 
We need to constantly be looking at that. We need to make sure that we use our life to serve God first. And here's the reason. The third point I want to talk about is that God sets us all apart when his spirit comes upon us. And his spirit, if you're a believer today, if you took communion because you're a believer, his spirit's upon you. All believers. So now in the Old Testament, it was a little different. Before the death of Christ and his resurrection and Pentecost, before all that, in the Old Testament, it was kind of rare that the Spirit of God would come on somebody. And when he did come on somebody, it was just for one activity or just for one job, and then it was gone. The best examples of that are another judge before Samuel named Samson. We've probably heard his story. You know, talk about an up and down life. This guy's following God and doing the opposite half the time, but God uses him to deliver Israel. And then sometimes the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Samson and he's able to do some amazing feats to deliver Israel. But then the rest of the time, the Spirit of the Lord's not on him. He's doing all kinds of stuff that he shouldn't be doing. And then even King Saul, who's king at this point in our narrative. You know, God has Samuel anoint Saul and then the Spirit of the Lord comes upon Saul and he defeats the enemies But he doesn't stay with Saul. And then, you know, Saul is not following God. But occasionally the Spirit of the Lord will come upon him and he'll do something good or right. But it's different with David. With David, we're told in the Bible, that's everybody in the Old Testament except David. With David, we're told in the Bible that the Spirit came on him from that day on. Verse 13. Then Samuel took... So here, hey, hey, it's David. This is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. It's kind of a weird way to transition out of that. So boom, the spirit of the Lord is on David and the spirit of the Lord never leaves David. And so Samuel's like, Okay, you know, I'm, I'm done here. I've been called out of retirement a few times. We've got this all kind of wrapped up. And now the presence of God in David is going to be a theme throughout his entire life that we're going to be talking about in the next several weeks. And remember, anointing with oil is just a symbol of somebody being set apart for God and having the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Somebody set apart, kind of removed and set aside for a special purpose. And so God's Spirit is alive in David. And, and so it's in one sense, everything's changed for David. But then in another sense, nothing's changed. Because guess what? Samuel then just leaves, heads to another part of the country. And David's standing there and Pretty soon his brothers go back to doing what they're doing and his dad goes back to what they're doing and the hired hands go back to what they're doing and David just, oh, someone's got to watch the sheep and off he goes to continue being a shepherd. And by the way, being a shepherd was like the lowest job around, the dirtiest, smelliest, hardest. You know, you're, you're shepherding 
stinky, smelly sheep all day. What are you doing? Mainly, you're just trying to get them to move where they've eaten the grass to a place where there, there is some grass to eat. You would think they could do that on their own, but no, they're sheep. So you've got to help them to do that. And you're keeping the animals away because sheep aren't very fast. They're just like muffins for other animals. They don't go fast. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and they're not very smart. You know, they don't have this flight thing down when a predator is around as well as they should. And so that's what you do all day long. You know, a lot of times this was the outcast. It's, it's because of this job also that people are thinking, you know, somehow David's in a different classification here. It's a lowly job. But here's the deal. Here's what I want to remind you of. It, not everybody here is a believer. But if you are a believer, for example, if you took communion, after Mike was explaining that only believers should take communion, if you took communion, if you're a believer, then you are indwelt by the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 1.22 is talking about God. He says, who also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. A pledge is like a guarantee. It's a slam dunk. It's going to happen. God's with us forever. We have the Spirit inside of us as a guarantee of that. If you put your faith in Jesus alone for your salvation, if you're only trusting in him. And of course, if that's true, you'll want to follow him in gratitude. Well, if that's true, you are set apart for God's work no matter what you do as a vocation. And maybe it's not where you think it ought to be. You think, well, okay, well, Kevin, you're saying set apart, but, man, I'm out here doing this job, you know, I'm working this shift, and you, you know, people around, oh, I'm telling you, God has you where he wants you. David, the future greatest king of ancient Israel, already anointed with the Spirit of God. And what's he doing? Shepherding sheep. That's it. He's just roaming around the wilderness, getting a bunch of dumb animals to go the direction he wants them to go. Anybody can do this, but David's doing it. But God used his time there. Just like God will use your time where you're at if your heart is to follow God. You know, for example, one thing that happened is David learned to play the lyre or the lyre. I don't know what you call that thing. It's basically the old guitar. First, you know, this is the guitar from 3,000 years ago or whatever. You know, he's out in the middle of nowhere. He learns to play that. You know, I grew up in Colorado, so, and I don't know if this is anybody else's experience, but every once in a while, a bunch of kids, teenagers, we had all, hey, we're going up in the mountains, and we'd go up and hike around. Sooner or later, somebody's going to build a fire. You know, the, the fire starters always summon, I got to get a fire going, you know, the pyromaniac in the group, so they get that going, and everybody sits around. And then out of nowhere, because you're kind of hiking along, you know, and out of nowhere comes somebody with a huge guitar. Boom, they pull out this huge guitar. Has this ever happened to you? And you're going, where'd that come from? 
you know, big old acoustic guitar. And then they start playing John Denver songs. So, you know, again, it's a timing thing. You can Google him if you want, but there are t- he talked a lot about Colorado. So it's John Denver songs, you know, sitting around the fire. And then, you know, and, and he, usually this happened multiple times to me. Usually guy's pretty good. Not really what I want to be doing, but the guy's pretty good at the guitar. And then, of course, all the girls are like, wow, he's so dreamy. You know, and, and so then I, you know, about halfway into the first song, I kind of faded off and went back to hiking or doing whatever. Hey, you're in the mountains. But David, not that way. He's got a, a, his guitar, and he's out in the wilderness, but all his time as he's learning how to play this is his thoughts are all about God. And he keeps writing songs about God. And he uses his instrument to sing prayers and praises and thanksgiving to God. And not only that, the fact that he learns how to play this instrument, you know, that comes up later in his story. Really, it's the next thing that shows up. We're not going to get there, but God uses that. Who knew? Well, our guys know that play guitar up here, but who besides them? You know, don't, who knew? A king. And then not only that, guys ever been plinking? You know, you're killing time out in the middle of nowhere and you go plinking, you take your pistol or whatever. You, David's got the sling. And so he's doing that and practicing and out of boredom and practicing, maybe trying to round up the one sheep that's way over there that he didn't feel like going. You know, and practicing and practicing. And guess what? That practice comes in handy too, doesn't it? But that's for next time. So we'll, we'll get to that next week. So here's the deal. God has anointed you, believer. Believer, God has anointed you with his spirit and that means he set aside you for a special purpose in this world and it's to glorify him God knows you God loves you and if you've responded to that love he has given you his spirit he has equipped you and set you apart for his special purposes. And sometimes we lose that because sometimes we're looking at the world and we're seeing this mess and we're going, wow, this is a messy world. Our culture is heading for a problem. And sometimes we just kind of want to sit back. I'm like this sometimes and I'll be like, wow, this is going to be interesting. How's this going to turn out? But that's not how we get to be, right? Because God's saying, no, we don't sit on the sidelines and watch as how everything's going to play out just to kind of fulfill our intellectual questions and curiosity. No, God's saying he has set us apart for a purpose and we are to be on the field, making a difference, impacting people for Christ. He's given all of us a job to do. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're doing, God's given us a mission. Hey, everything else, it's just a shadow mission. It's just a reason to be there, a way to provide for our family. But our real reason is to glorify God. We are players. God has set us aside to take our part, to play our part, to impact 
world. I'm gonna close in prayer. And then right after I do that, we're gonna sing. And here's my challenge to you. I want us to sing with gusto. And so I'm not saying this to the ladies. Who am I saying this to? The men. There's a bunch of you guys, you don't sing. You're like me. You're thinking, well, if I sing, the people in front of me are going to want to leave. You know, I don't have a good voice. I'm out of pitch. I don't really know how to sing. I feel funny singing. Hey, David, the greatest warrior king in Israel, sang. We had communion. Mike mentioned it earlier today. What'd they do after the bread and the cup? What did Jesus do? He sang. Maybe because singing releases something in our heart or it does something. It doesn't matter. It's what Jesus did. It's what David did. It's good enough for me. Even though you don't want to hear it. It's good enough for me. So we're going to pray and then we'll sing. Let's stand together. Father God, we thank you for your goodness and your provision for us. And we thank you for giving us the example of the life of David that we're going to be studying. And God, we're reminded that if we're sitting here and and not a believer, Lord, we pray that you would impact their hearts and draw them to you, that you love them, know them, want a relationship with them. All they have to do is turn to you. And Father, for the rest of us, that we would be reminded that you have come into our lives through your spirit and you have set us apart for your purposes. God, help us to be faithful to that. In Christ's name we pray, amen.